Oh, I Like That, a podcast about things we like and occasionally things we don't. I'm Sally Tamarkin, and I am very excited to tell you that I'm here with a guest co-host, Kira Deschler. Kira, welcome to Oh, I Like That. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm totally psyched. Uh, I'm a just a huge Kira Deschler fan. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to tell everyone who you are, and I'm going to make you talk about your work a little bit. Okay, sounds good. Kira is a freelance entertainment writer and self-appointed lesbian pop culture expert. She writes a newsletter called Paging Dr. Lesbian that focuses on all things sapphic pop culture. She has a master's in media studies from UT Austin and wrote her thesis on lesbian and sapphic fandom. Her favorite thing to do is think about why people love the things they do. She currently resides in Austin, Texas, but is originally from Seattle, Washington. Great bio. And... From there, I'm going to uh, ask you to talk a little bit about yourself so that the Likeheads, um, which is a, a name that I forced on the people who listen to this show, uh, <laughs> can get to know you if they don't already. I'm a big fan of your newsletter, Paging Dr. Lesbian, and I was wondering if you could um, just talk a little bit about the newsletter. Um, and maybe this can be a separate question, but maybe you can fold it in. I was wondering like, if you can talk a little bit about the terminology sapphic paging dr lesbian uh it's all about lesbian queer sapphic pop culture which can mean basically anything i wanted to do because i am the writer of the newsletter so it could be about movies or tv shows or internet phenomena or cultural things or really again anything i want to be about that i think is interesting um like one time i wrote about patrick swayze because I think his portrayal of a specific type of masculinity is interesting, and I'm interested in gender. I was a gender studies major in undergrad, so interested in all things gender. Um, well, I named the newsletter Paging Dr. Lesbian because I, I think lesbian is an interesting term right now in the culture. It, some people think, you know, it's too old school, we should stop using it, which I think is kind of problematic. And it's also a term I struggled with growing up wanting to claim for myself. So that's kind of why I named the newsletter that, but I also use sapphic um, kind of to describe people could be non-binary people or people identify as women who are attracted to other women. So lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, the whole gamut of things. I try to use lesbian when it's specifically that thing that I mean, but if I'm trying to talk about a larger group of people who have, whom I do not know personally, I sometimes use sapphic to describe that group of people. First, we're going to do a vibe check as we do in the beginning of every, every episode. And then we're going to, uh, we're going to jump into talking about our main segment, which, uh, we're gonna talk about the movie Carol, which I'm very excited about. Um, I'll do my vibe check first because I don't want to make the guests go first. Um, the vibe for me is novel fun. I am going away this weekend to see friends. I'm really excited to take a little road trip and then take another mini road trip inside that road trip. And I'm going to see folks I haven't seen in a really, really long time, including an old friend who had a baby right before the pandemic. Uh, and I still have not met and he's like a full grown up now. So I'm really excited about that. And the other thing that is novel fun is just to break the fourth wall a little bit. You're the first co-host of, oh, I like that. That isn't like someone I know in real life is like a, a personal friend. Um, so I'm really excited to like record with someone who's a stranger to me. Cause I can't rely on like my usual, like, that's oh, just Sally being Sally. I gotta, you know, I gotta think about what I say and make some points. So I'm excited to, to try to be sort of coherent in that, in that new way. Uh, and I'm absolutely thrilled to talk about Carol. Kira, what is your vibe? So I'll, I'll, go with kind of a lofty phrase. I was thinking about nourishing the soul because I went to, I had a, went to a dinner for a friend's birthday the other night at this new restaurant I'd never been to. And the food was just so incredible. I was like making inappropriate noises at the dinner table. Um, and just the company and the food, we were discussing it afterwards and we were like, yes, this was incredibly soul nourishing and wonderful. So that's the vibe I'm trying to continue having. I love that. I hope that our conversation is nourishing for the soul or the brain or something or both. That sounds incredible. We're going to talk about the movie Carol. I want to just say a few things up top. First of all, we're going to spoil the movie. Part of me wants to say 
to anyone listening, don't listen to this until you've watched it. But another part of me feels like this is something that this is a movie that like uh, you can know what happens in the movie. And I think the like experience of like taking it in will not be compromised. And I say this as someone who's watched Carol many, many, many times. And like every single time it just feels I see, I see new things. I hear new things. It's magical. Kira, you said you watch it every year. Yeah, I watch it every year around Christmas time. I just checked my letterbox and I think I've watched it 11 times now. And you, you know exactly what's going to happen down to the most minute details and you still find things to rewatch. Yes, again, every time there's something new I find. It's your life. I'm not your dad. You should do whatever you feel comfortable with, but just know that we're not going to hold back and we're going to like talk about how the movie begins, how it ends. Like we're going to talk about like uh, split second glances that uh, Kate Blanchett and uh, Rooney Mara exchange. I can never remember if it's Rooney or Kate, but it's Rooney. I want to set up why we're discussing this movie specifically um, because we went back and forth a little bit um, over email when I reached out to you about like what we should talk about because the, the fact of the matter is, is that like I, I feel like there are about 50 things that I'd like to talk to you about. Um, I, am, <laughs> I'm not, you're a, a capital S scholar of like queer, of like sapphic, uh, media and like fandom. I'm a, like, I'm a lowercase S scholar, which is to say, I just watch a lot of shit and think about it constantly. Um, and so I, I felt like I really wanted to talk about a movie with you, but in particular, you are someone who thinks and writes a lot about fandom and how people are like reacting to things, but also kind of like integrating them into their real life understanding and experience of like queerness, which I think is really fascinating. And in fact, your master's thesis, you everyone should read it. I think it's it was so interesting. And we also are from different generations, like chronologically and in terms of like queer culture. And so um it's it's really interesting to hear your point of view and uh, and talk about this stuff with someone who has like a different experience of things than I do. And, and like related to that, Carol, I think is really special because it has a huge, uh, it, it has a huge presence in like, in like sapphic, I guess, like fandom. Um, and it's like been memed to death. Uh, people have written essays about, like people memeing it. Um, and so I, I was interested in considering like, not that like we're like knee deep in like movies about queer women falling in love or anything like that. And there's just a zillion of them. So why this one, but there are like, especially in the last few years, you know what I mean? Like you, you have your portrait of a lady on fire, you have your, um, your Ammonites, your, what else has come out recently? Um, I, this, I feel like there's always like a, a period drama about like queer women falling in love. And so like, why Carol? And why Carol, why talk about Carol with you, Kira? And a big reason to me is like the fandom angle and like what the movie is doing that people are interested in like reacting to and feel so incredibly strongly about. Having said that, <laughs> do you think that my assessment that like this is, a huge movie in like for like a queer fandom as someone who like pays really close attention, much closer than I do to like people online and how they react to things. Do you think that my assessment is like accurate that this has like kind of a huge role, like an outsized role almost? Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. It's, I mean, I, I said earlier that I watch it every Christmas, but I'm like not the only one who does that. Like it's become kind of a tradition to do, I think in part because there are like, almost very few like lesbian Christmas movies or queer Christmas movies for one. So that's like, what else? I, I don't really want to watch love actually again. So like I could watch Carol. Um, but I also think people have a really strong attachment to the idea of, especially queer people, lesbian sapphics have a really strong attachment to the idea of like happy endings. Um, I'm getting already to the ending. Sorry. But so I think that that has a really important role in people's um desire to rewatch the film and kind of like live in that film for a long period of time i i think that we do have a, i know that we have like a lot of queer listeners um but i know that we also have listeners who aren't queer um or and aren't as involved and interested in like 
queer and like paying close attention to like queer stuff. And so I don't know if everyone knows that like movies about particularly queer women um, falling in love, like those have only started having like nice, happy endings uh, very recently. And, and they even still like mostly don't, um, or they, they have sort of complicated endings where like, it's like, maybe they don't end up together, but they find some deeper, uh, sense of self that they earned through the relationship or something like that. I feel like that's a big one. Uh, could you talk for like a second about just like the happy ending thing, uh, in general? Yeah. There, I mean, there's a super long history of happy versus not happy endings in terms of lesbian media. I mean, you go back all the way back to like the 1800s, what's often known as the first like lesbian book is Carmilla, which now has the web series. But back in the day, it was like, she's an evil lesbian. She's a vampire, right? Is that the vampire yeah, one? She's a, yeah. she's a vampire, yeah. And then we get to like the era of cinema. There's the Hayes Code, which started in the early 30s, which basically said like queer people, gay people can't be seen or the big thing with the Hayes Code was if something immoral happened on screen, there had to be a punishment. So that would be crime, actual crime, like being gay, being whatever, adulterous, that had to be punished. That was a 40-year chunk of cinema where you like couldn't be gay. And if you were implied to be gay, you had to be punished or seen as immoral. And then the big, big moment, which relates to Carol, is the lesbian pulp novel, which... The Price of Salt, which Carol is based off of, is often considered part of that genre, although it's a little bit distinct, I would say. Um, and some of those books were actually written by lesbians and queer women, some written by straight men, but most of them ended badly, again, because of the ideas that lesbianism was about in the time. Basically, they either ended in like uh, the woman, um, one of the main women going back to heterosexuality, so to speak one of the women or the main woman uh, being institutionalized or dying. Oftentimes lesbian pulp novels ended that way. So even, even The Price of Salt, which came out, I believe in 51, it, having a somewhat happy ending was huge, hit 52, it was huge back then. And it con continues to be huge today. It's really cool that The Price of Salt that like Carol, the movie version of The Price of Salt went on to like have kind of a huge role. Um, and like, or I should say have a lot of meaning in the way that like the price of salt in the way that the price of salt did in terms of like having that happy ending. Although it's kind of a bummer that like 50 plus years later, it's still novel for there to, for something to not end with like the holy trinity of lesbian folk novels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The main beats of the plot, we have uh, uh, Therese, who is a young woman early 20s who works at a department store in Manhattan uh and she notices Carol played by Kate Blanchett come into the department store she's looking for a Christmas present for her young daughter um they uh they sort of have a uh, an awkward flirtation um they start kind of hanging out it turns out that Carol is in the midst of uh, separation from her husband Harge iconically named Harge. <laughs> These two kind of fall in love. They, they go on a little road trip. Uh, what's happening with Carol? I'm like completely butchering the plot. Do not like, <laughs> do not go off of this plot description. It turns out that Carol is, um, has a young daughter who Harge is basically using as a bargaining chip in the divorce and basically trying to get her to stay with him. Uh, and if, if basically she doesn't, he's going to, uh, and he does, uh, like what's it called? It's like morale. He, he basically like tells the court that she's a dyke. Right. And like, uh, mm -hmm. um, and basically threatens like, you know, this is going to take away your kid from you. And in fact, uh, there's a great scene where that gets sorted out. Therese and Carol kind of stop seeing each other. They get back together. That's how it ends. Um, again I decided to lean into how badly I was discussing the plot and <laughs> and just like really ruin it so I, I apologize for that maybe Aram our editor can maybe like cut that out and um insert me just like reading the synopsis of the plot because that would be better but basically th those are the main beats did I miss any main beats not commenting on the content Kira <laughs> did I miss any main beats 
There's also, importantly, Abby, played by Sarah Paulson, who's Kate Blanchett's best friend in the movie, who I think is a very important character, actually. Yes, totally. That's a really good point. She is a really important character. I think with that, let's start taking apart a little bit what makes this such an important and popular movie for queer queer women, lesbians, sapphic people. Um, one thing that you mentioned when we were talking over email, Kira, is like the depiction of like loneliness and disconnection as a queer person. And um, I think it's it's so interesting that a movie with that does such an exquisite job of showing what it feels like for two people to be drawn to each other so inexorably to also be able to portray uh, like abject loneliness also in such an exquisite way. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, particularly like in the context of like queer loneliness generally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things about the film is how it depicts loneliness. And I think it does a lot of that like visually. Like there's a lot of visual motifs, if you will, that depict the differences between connection and disconnection, I would say. So when you think about how how each character is framed and shot, you see Therese is oftentimes um, shot like from the other side of a window, whether she's in a cab or a train or in the window of a building. She's often shot with that, there's a barrier between her and the outside world, which I think you could talk about as a universal feeling, but I also think there's a particular like queer flavor to that, feeling like you're not able to connect and you're not really sure why. Because as far as we know, she's not had a queer experience before Carol, so she just ostensibly feels some sort of disconnection or barrier between her and other people that's depicted visually through the way she's framed in and around windows. And I think you also see that, you also see that in terms of how the, both Carol and Therese are um, framed with other people. So like, there's a really cool shot I love where Carol's um, at a party, at one of Harge's parties, and a woman who she's like friendly, friendly with comes over. Um, and at first, they're standing in the same side of the window, but then Carol moves away, and there's like the window frame separating them. And that's, that happens several times throughout the film, where there's, there's a physical barrier window frame in between two of the characters like indicating this sort of disconnection between them and also happens at the end of the movie where Carrie Brownstein randomly is in it which oh my god role, that, that always her, surprises me by well, the way it's because her role is supposed to be larger but it was cut out um like in in the price of salt the book at the end of the film Therese goes to a party and there's like some dancer woman who's like hitting on her and keeps trying to get with Therese and then she goes to Carol and clearly mm, Carrie okay. Brownstein was supposed to be that character who's like hitting on Therese and having an obvious interest in her, but they cut it out for whatever reason. But anyway, there's a scene where Rooney Mara is in Therese is in one window on the left, I think. And Carrie Brownstein's character is in one window on the right. And then Carrie Brownstein like traverses the barrier to Therese's window, but then Therese like runs away again. So there's a lot of that, connection and disconnection between both in terms of barriers between Therese and the outside world and then also a sense of disconnection whether on purpose or just accidental between two different characters in the film who are not Therese and Car Carol who obviously have this intense connection that is also indicated visually I think frequently throughout the film. The most recent time I watched this which was um, a few weeks ago to prepare for this I noticed the scene between Carol and the friend at the party in a way that I had never noticed it before. Um, and I noticed part of part of it was their relationship to each other physically, but I didn't really put anything together beyond that, except that I was like, oh, this is this is a more significant scene than I had realized on previous watches. Um, and I think it must be because of the thing that you're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And these are these are the kinds of things that like I don't notice. And when you say them, I'm like, oh yeah, of course that's what was happening. And I think that's like a thing, like a Todd Haynes thing um, in general, which is that like every single frame is so rich visually yes. and oftentimes like sound wise as well. Like the score of this movie is mm -hmm. really beautiful. Um, 
and there's just a lot going on. And I, I, I tend to be a very, I, I can, I often notice subtext if it's like right under the text, but if it's a little bit more, um, if the symbolism is like more intense and it's more like hidden, I don't notice that stuff as much. So I'm really glad you, you brought that up because I, now I'm thinking about how much we see Therese, um, in that cab looking out the window mm -hmm. and the movie yeah. is actually her remembering all this stuff that happened between her and Carol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's mostly from her perspective. So you get more of her looking, but also I think then when you think about how Carol and Therese are both struggling to connect with others, I think then the scenes of um, Carol and Therese together really indicate that difference. So one of my favorite scenes is when they're in, they're in the car together driving to Carol's house and they're going under the bridge and the music, the Patsy Klein song is kind of muted in the background and the camera's like in the car with them, mm -hmm. but it's kind of like out of focus. It's like, it's really close mm -hmm. to them and they're really close together. And there's no, there's not a sense of boundary there anymore as, as there is with those characters and other people. Um, so I think that's also illustrated really beautifully how they, there's a sense of connection between them that is not mirrored elsewhere in their lives. I'm reading, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's basically a biography of Anne Lister, the who I'm sure you know is the main character of Gentleman Jack. And one of the things I was thinking about when I when I was reading it is like how so Anne Lister was um she's often called like the first modern lesbian. She was like a kind of out quasi out lesbian in um England. She died in 1830, 1840, 1837, something like that. Um, and I'm trying not to make this too big of a tangent. One of the things that occurred to me when I was reading about it is how, how much subterfuge there is involved in her, um, like just basically like pursuing her romantic desires and not just around like sex, but like companionship and how much of her world was just in is was just only for her or her and the people she was romantically involved with and that's a very small world to have um because it's like not safe for your world to be bigger or people don't understand you or it's not legal or whatever the thing is and i think that that um also you know to a lesser extent because it's the 1950s not the 1830s that similar vibe, which I think is like present in a lot of, a lot of movies, especially if they're period movies about queer women is that you you're in this, like, you're very alone in your world, your interior world. And then there's also a world you share with the one other person who you are uh, romantically involved with. And maybe you have like a small group of friends, of course, like queer people have always had friends, but like, it's, it's just that like your, your world is not the worlds that maybe we would see in like a, a movie about like to like about a man and a woman falling in love where they, they go out and they're in the world and they, you know, they, they have their workplaces and the things they do for fun and, you know, their worlds are expansive. Um, and I think that like, there's like a, a loneliness and a claustrophobia and also like something really beautiful about being like, well, I can share this only with you. And I think, um, Carol captures all, a lot of that really well. And again, I'm realizing that like the, the things about the way it's shot, um, accomplish that really well. Yeah. I think it definitely is successful in illustrating how they're like finding this tiny little world of like, refuge like within each other like inside the car inside the hotel rooms and such that's why i also think like abby is a really important character because like most rom-coms i mean i know carol's not a rom-com but most like romantic movies have like you know the best friend character in that kind of thing and most lesbian movies don't because again like you said it's like they're like in this small little world but so that's why i think abby is an interesting character because it kind of illustrates that there's like a bigger world of queer people out there and she can be the sassy best friend who's also the sassy lesbian friend who like you know indicates that there's more out there perhaps like when she's like talking about oh that redhead Rita Hayworth who I have my eye on like it kind of is a tiny little hint that there's like a bigger world beyond yeah. Carol and Therese even if we don't really see it 
Totally. That's like, that's another thing that I think, like you said, we don't see a lot. It's really beautiful. I keep saying the word beautiful. I guess I'm in that kind of a mood today. I guess my soul is being nourished because <laughs> like the other thing is that like Abby is one of Carol's oldest friends and also is kind of an ex. Like they kind of had some sort of hookup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is has also led to some really funny memes about Abby being like the emotional support ex, um, yes, the lesbian exactly. emotional support ex, which yes, is really so funny. Lesbian. <laughs> yeah, totally. Which is which is really funny. But like, uh, yes, we do get these hints of these little worlds, and they get to they they speak so freely with each other. It's not coded and shameful. Like you know, it's like they're talking about Rita Hayworth, and Abby's like, can she asks Abby if like Abby can handle a redhead or something like that. Isn't that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Rita Hayworth. Something about, yeah. Can you handle a redhead? Right. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. 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 Um, which is great because I, I feel like that's like a version of a conversation you would hear today. And I'm sure like Ann Lister had that version of conversation with like one of her confidants. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's just been true. That's since antiquity. <laughs> Sappho herself had that conversation <laughs> with a friend. Um, Okay, cool. So um, loneliness connection. So the other thing that we talked about is like, um, I we had a conversation about this, like about how I thought that I was, I was sort of surprised that which now that we've talked about this more, I'm not surprised, but I was surprised that a movie that isn't that horny um, has such a huge place in the fandom. Because like, I, I think another thing that maybe, you know, you'd like the generally, you know, um, and you definitely know this if you're a queer person, like before you watch a movie about like two p women falling in love, you're like, how much sex is there? Is there <laughs> it, like, is there a lot who choreographed? Is it going to be annoyingly done? Is it going to look fake? Is it going to look like it's for the consumption of men? Like, you know, you sort of want to know all those things. And this movie isn't really that horny. Like, as you pointed out to me, Kira, like there are much hornier movies, uh, sapphic love story movies. But what this movie, okay, first of all, I will say that I think the ratio of like longing to intimacy or to horniness is like right on the money. And I think that ratio being off is sometimes a huge turnoff. Like it's like, you, and this is why like people make fun of these like period dramas about women falling in love is because you, you see them yearn, yearn for each other constantly. And you're like, where's my like hot girl on girl action? Like, you know what I mean? Um, to, to be vulgar. And, um, this, I, I, I for me, for my money, I, the ratio, uh, like bears out. And part of that is probably that like the longing is so like exquisitely done and stuff like that. But anyway, all that is to say, can you talk a little bit about the like the horniness of it and the um the the ratio thing? Tell me what you think of of that idea and if that's like what what just like just I want you to weigh in on the on this whole like uh the different kinds of like I guess like also like eroticism we see in in the movie. Um so yeah I'm gonna just give you the floor to weigh in on that any way you'd like. Yeah I, I agree that I think the ratio is really well done, which is why it's, I think, so compelling to watch. Um, yeah, I think the lo the longing is very explicit, but I think this, this, it makes the fact that it's not like a super erotic movie makes the small moments of intimacy like feel much bigger and much more important. And that's also how the narrative goes and how it's shot and all of that. So like, if you think, for example, of like all the shoulder touches feel like very very important and I mean they are because they happen several times throughout the film and they have different meanings different times um I also think there's something to be said for I think the the film displays the dichotomy between like coldness and warmth really well in a way that ties back into kind of longing and yearning I think like it's the 50s it's winter everything is very cold but then when you come to the moments of Therese and Carol, you kind of, you feel that simmering, not simmering like hot heat, but like simmering like warmth, mm -hmm, which again mm -hmm. ties into like eroticism versus just like intimacy. And I think that distinction is is made um, really beautifully. But I mean, I think, again, the, sh the shoulder touches at the beginning and the end of the film, I think are really interesting because um, the film starts like at the end like it goes back so it starts when they're at dinner together Carol tells her she loves her she puts her hand on her shoulder and then she leaves and then it that comes back around again near the end and that 
that beginning and ending structure is actually a very obvious homage to this film called Brief Encounter, which came mm. out in 1945, which is about a straight couple who have an affair. They, they meet at a train station. Um, they're just passing through. They like immediately fall in love. Um, and it, it ends and begins the exact same way with they're at the cafe. The man has to go away. He puts his hand on her shoulder and leaves. And it's like the shoulder touches, like you don't realize until the end that the shoulder touches like everything. And that's another movie where like, they don't have, this was the forties. So they were not having sex. Like there's none of that. They like kiss two, maybe three times. So like that, that moment is really important, which again, I think ties into the time period. Um, obviously people were having sex in the fifties, but I think it, it ties into like the strength, the idea of restraint that we kind of think about in the fifties in terms of things having to look beautiful and sound beautiful and, you know, not be overly passionate. I think that kind of ties in to how the characters in the film act as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like third base for the, the, it's like the shoulder touches third base for like the brief encounter. Yeah, couple. absolutely. Um, yeah, totally. So the, the touching of shoulders in Carol, um, first of all, you see the first one, you see them from different perspectives. I think, um, because you, you see with the last, the one at the end of the movie, don't you see, I feel like you see Therese react to it. Yeah, it's from a, like a different angle. It's from, one is from the front and one is from the back. And the, the other thing is there's also, whatever that guy's name is, Jack, whatever. Yeah. The guy who this comes- is the, This is what I was going to bring up. <laughs> that he, he touches Therese's shoulder. Yeah, that, yeah, that dude. He, he, doesn't he, matter. he also touches his shoulder. And then you see the difference between his shoulder yes. touch and her shoulder touch. And then again, it becomes real. At the, the beginning of the film, it's not as obvious how important it is. But, but by the end of the film, you're like, oh- that shoulder touch meant everything and Jack's everything what shoulder touch meant nothing <laughs> like totally totally and and like um those are really important and like you said they bracket the movie and then there's also the like um the the like the one or I guess there was maybe two sex scenes and the first one where they first like really have like a, a romantic intimate like embrace mm -hmm. and like um that starts with like shoulder touching like yeah it's a, it's a shoulder touch and then a really a really erotic opening of the bathroom but after a shoulder touch importantly yeah after the shoulder touch never has like someone opening a robe and you can't see their body at all been like so erotic um, yeah exactly and they're in a mirror which is interesting which mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about but like now when you talk about the windows and the um like how much we see looking through windows um, and things that take place framed in windows. It's interesting that they're like in looking in the mirror together. Yeah. Cause it's also, they, they can see each other. I mean, they're Therese and Carol looking at the mirror and they're seeing them like as a couple in the mirror in a way that I think it's interesting. Like they're yeah. seeing themselves in that way. Totally. Totally. Um, so one thing that I wanted to talk about which I didn't really put this in our in our document so you can like you can veto this because I'm springing <laughs> it on you um and it's it's actually sort of interesting that this is an afterthought to me because it's a huge part of the movie um and I have read Price of Salt not in a really long time I started rereading it in preparation for this but didn't finish so I, I can't remember the way it's depicted in the book but like a huge thing that's happening is that Carol is like in the process of being separated from her daughter, who's mm -hmm. maybe like four or something like that. Yeah, around that. Around that age. And we 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 like learn, we, we see in the movie that like Carol really loves her and they're very close and Carol's, and uh, Rindy, her daughter, is really important to her and all of these like touching ways and like Harge is like taking her away for this vacation during Christmas, which isn't what they agreed to. Um, and then he's also trying to like, uh, he's like, you know, like I said before, using her as a pawn in this thing. And he's trying to prevent Carol from seeing her. And like, it's, it ends up being the thing that drives a wedge between Carol and Therese. And it's really fucking sad. And, um, as, as a former guest of, Oh, I like that wrote about, um, link to this in the show notes, Frankie de la Creta wrote an, an essay about how the way Carol is memed, um, 
gives you a, a much different impression of like the, what the movie actually is and that there's actually like a lot of sadness and a lot of tragedy in the movie, which I thought was a really interesting perspective. I don't really share the perspective that Frankie has um, and wrote about, but um, it is worth noting that this is kind of, again, as evidenced by me forgetting to mention it to you, it's, it's you know, like, if it was discovered that you were a queer person, like maybe you would, you would not have access to your kids anymore. Um, you know, so it, it's a real thing. It's sad. It's tragic. And I'm wondering if you think here that like, like what you think of that, that idea that I just mentioned in the, in that essay that like, it's like the, the memes don't fully capture the movie. I mean, I don't know that memes ever really fully capture anything. <laughs> so I, I, you know, whatever, but like, but like, to what extent do you, do you think that like, people, you know, particularly like queer people watching Carol are interested in reacting to like that aspect of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that's like one of the most important parts of the movie actually is that part of dealing Carol dealing with her divorce and the custody arrangement. Um, <clears throat> because I think it, it illustrates a kind of like journey she goes on, like apart from Therese, like in terms of she has this really great line that's actually taken directly from the book where she's like, I won't live against my own grain. And that's like her really trying to like hold on to who she is and like retain her sense of dignity and retain her sense of like queerness as well. Um, I think that's also one of the things that makes the movie better than the book. I'll say, I think the movie is better than the book because in, in the, in the book you only see or hear Teresa's perspective. So Basically what happens with the book is they start on their road trip, Carol and Therese, and then Carol has to go back to New York or New Jersey or wherever. And Therese is left with Carol's car for like months, like in Ohio, wherever she is. And Carol's just writing her letters and Therese is really depressed because she's just like, has nothing to do. But we never actually see Carol's full perspective on what's going on besides the letters she writes to Therese. So I think adding that, part of Carol's perspective of the divorce proceedings and the custody arrangement, it, it makes Carol a more interesting character and it adds this other sense of like, like social ideas and important, you know, it's like, it adds like a historical detail that I think is important and interesting and deserves further consideration. But yeah, it is the middle part gets kind of dark. Like when Carol takes out the gun and you're like, Oh shit. Like, this is not going yeah. well. This is not going to... And then it's, that, I guess, kind of makes it a little bit more surprising that it does actually end on a happy note, being that there was just, like, someone was just pointing a gun at this guy, like, 25 minutes earlier or whatever. Therese finds the gun in Carol's luggage when she's, like, she's going to get Carol, like, a shirt or something, and she sees the gun. And, you know, both Therese and I, as a viewer, were like, whoa, that's what kind of story this is like yeah. and um you know then you know there's this whole thing where they're being secretly taped in a in the hotel room which is a thing that Patricia Highsmith who wrote The Price of Salt based on a real life experience she was like seeing kind of a, a society an older society lady a Carol Aird-esque lady um whose husband recorded I don't know if it was like Patricia Highsmith and her but like basically recorded his wife in some sort of romantic situation with another woman and used it to take her kids away from her, right? So, um, but that whole thing happens. It's fucking dark as hell. I will say I really, really like the actor who plays the guy who pretends to be uh, yeah. a, a salesman. <laughs> I think he's good too. <laughs> he's really good. He makes a whole meal out of the like very small amount of dialogue he has. And I also realized that he plays um, Ed Nigma in Gotham, which is like, a, a pretty, pretty gonzo, like not very good, but extremely enjoyable. And I'm obsessed with it show uh, <laughs> on Netflix about like Batman. But anyway, the point is great scenes, but really, um, really dire. And I think a thing that adds to sort of of the like, the direness is that Therese is, tr is like realizes something is up. Carol is like, making phone calls home and she has a gun with her and Therese is sort of asking like what's going on. And, and Carol is not really, uh, Carol's kind of like blowing her off a little bit. And so there's this added thing of like, what's really happening? What's Carol, <clears throat> what does Carol really have going on? Um, and it, and it, um, it 
definitely casts a pall over that like middle third of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it kind of it becomes somewhat of like a noir at that point. Like yeah. when the gun comes out, it kind of the tone shifts. The soundtrack also shifts. The tone shifts, and it becomes uh, com- becomes kind of ominous in a way you might not be expecting if you haven't read it or seen it before. The guy who's pretending to be a salesman. Um, when we first meet him, he is very cheerful and sort of doofy and gregarious. Um, and then the next time you meet him when he's been discovered to be this like private eye who's been spying on them, he drops the facade completely and he's like kind of stone-faced and very formal. And he's like, uh, and that, that you're like, oh my God, this could all go away. And just like, and it comes on the heels of their like lovely, beautiful, delightful, uh, like sex scene. So, and then finally getting together, um, like consummating their relationship. So the tone shift, um, there's some whiplash there and it's done really, really effectively. Yeah, I agree. I guess I want to talk about the ending a little bit more. Um, and then I want to talk about some of the like aesthetics, which we've touched on a little bit. Um, but the ending is like interesting to me because basically like Carol is like, I love you. I have an apartment. And I thought maybe I love the way Carol says things. She's like, I thought maybe you'd like to come live with me, but I guess you won't instead of being like, yeah, whatever, whatever she asks a question to Therese, she's like, Oh, maybe just come over maybe on Sunday. Like, Oh, you want to come? Like she, the way she always proposes things to Therese is so good. (laughs) It's so good. And it's like, I, I really like that we see her uh, vulnerability here yeah, in exactly. a way that like I just exactly. you know I don't think we have before like she's you know because we see so much of the movie from Therese's perspective and it and it seems like Therese is like hopelessly in love with Carol and we we think that Carol is in love with her too but like maybe it's a different thing for Therese Therese is young it's her first love like mm-hmm. um but we see in that moment that it's the same for her like she she really mm-hmm is vulnerable. And it's like, again, I mean, probably because Kate Blanchett is like a deity um, and (laughs) so good at acting. Um, The, the, like the contrast between what we've seen for most of the movie and this vulnerability is just, is really touching and really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the most interesting thing I think about that scene is like the, the power balance has shifted. Like for much of movie, it's like Carol has kind of been in control and, a pretty obvious sort of way but in this scene it's like carol is the one kind of almost begging therese and therese like has you know it's only been like three months but therese has like grown up and she's has now has the control to decide how, what on what terms she wants to you know meet with carol and i think that's a really interesting power shift that happens in that last scene yes incredible power shift we we have i have to put a pin in the like the age difference thing because okay, we absolutely yeah. have to talk about it um because like you said like when we see Therese now she is so girlish as in like almost like not like a little almost yeah she almost has like a little kid type of thing she's got the severe bang she's got that little hat that she <laughs> wears and then at the end she's like she's she's has this like sophisticated look and I have to be honest with you, I'd be hard pressed to tell you exactly what's changed. I think her makeup is different. I think her hair is different. She's not wearing a hat, but there's something about her bearing that is so much mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. in control. Yeah. Um, I, okay. We're going to talk about that right now. We're going to talk about the ending uh, and then we'll come back to that. So she says, I, I think, you know, maybe you'd like to live with me or I, I thought maybe you'd come live with me, but I guess you won't. Therese says, no, I won't. Then Carol's like, okay, well, do you want to go? Well, do, if you don't want to live with me, do you want to go to dinner with me? I'm having dinner at nine, which is amazing. I've never done the, the only thing I've ever done at nine o'clock is be asleep in bed. But um, <laughs> this is Carol Aired, and she goes to dinner in Manhattan at nine o'clock. So uh, she's like, I'm going to the Oak Room at nine o'clock. And Therese goes to this party, locks eyes with Carrie Brownstein, but isn't interested. And then the last scene is Therese showing up at this restaurant and looking for Carol. Um, kind of like, kind of like, not, I wouldn't say forcing her way past the maitre d', but like, kind of. Um, yeah, she, like, like, brushes, she, she brushes past. She's like, I know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, which is like, so, she's so like a thing about her character until now is that she's so like, she's, she's like, mild mannered in behavior, if not in like thought, I think that like, 
it seems like she has a not meek and very interesting, rich, like inner life. But what she's showing you and showing people is like that she's just kind of wishy-washy and she's sort of going with the flow. She has this boyfriend who she's like kind of not that interested in and she has this job and she wants to be a photographer, but um, it, it like is she, she just is now, I guess we've said this already. She's now so much more like grown up and real, fully realized. She brushes past Mater D and she makes her way towards she she's looking around this like crowded room she finds carol can you describe this scene a little bit because you heard me describe the plot and it was like (laughs) terrible and and this scene is really special so could you talk a little bit about this yeah so she walks into the oak room and then the really beautiful score the score for this is just stunning it's it's the it's the similar to the score we hear at the very beginning of the movie um this this final this final piece she starts walking slowly towards Carol. Um, she doesn't see her at first, and then she does. And then we see Carol's face, and Carol doesn't see Therese. And it zooms in on Therese's face in slow motion. And then Carol finally looks up, sees Therese. And then the hint, the hint of a smile. Her, her lips turn up just a bit, but you, know, but you know she's seen Therese at that point. And then the movie ends with Carol slightly smiling up at Therese and then that's it yeah which is again like again about their like shared little world like if you were having dinner with Carol uh, you wouldn't notice that her expression even changed but if you're Therese it's it's so subtle but you know that it means so much you you know exactly that she's feeling ecstatic even if she's only smiling ever so slightly totally totally um this like this ending is to me it's it's like sort of in the cat have you seen um ammonite have i asked you about this already yes i I have you have okay and i know you've seen desert hearts because you're a big desert hearts fan i love it (laughs) i've rewatched it recently because you mentioned it and i was like why have i not been obsessed with this movie the whole time it's i'm a desert hearts truther everyone should watch desert hearts it's so good the ending of desert oh i well actually you know what i i don't want to i don't want to it's one thing to spoil carol it's another thing to also spoil desert hearts and ammonite everyone should go watch desert hearts and then talk about it <laughs> yeah and maybe we'll do like another if, if if the people are clamoring for another episode maybe you'll come back and talk about a movie that came out in like the when like the early 80s or something when's it from is the mid 80s yeah mid 80s okay Ah, man, it's so good. It's it feels much more modern than that. Anyway, okay, so so okay, now I I have to I'm removing the entire premise of my question or of my thought on this. But basically, the ending is like, the idea, I, I think that like, what people want what? Well, I guess let me not talk for every single queer person. But like, as a queer person myself, a queer non binary person myself, what I want not like from every single movie. Um, but when I want a happier, happyish ending, it's, it's not that like, I need everything to end with like, you know, a wedding and they're together for, you know, we see, we see a montage of them, like with their grandchildren or something like that. It's, um, more that the, the loneliness and the disconnection are, resolved and like the longing like finds purchase in like a meaningful way um which like we said earlier is still kind of hard to come by uh in like media um and I feel like this movie accomplishes that for me personally um in a way that feels very uh of a piece with the with the tone of the whole movie. Like there's a lot of, I mean, speaking of restraint, which you mentioned earlier, um, these performances feel, I don't know, maybe not restrained, but very like, this is one of those movies where there's like not a lot of dialogue, like that there's no like exposition. The exposition is like, like, uh, the way different shots are framed kind of. Yeah, yeah, it's all all visual. It's all visual. And so the, 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 the sort of, subtlety with which the movie like hints at these two people being able to come together um is so is so well done and is so is so satisfying um do you have thoughts about like this whole like happy ending issue yeah I mean I think again it's interesting that this is such this movie is beloved in part because of its happy ending, because it's a pretty subdued happy ending. But I think also 
in regards to like why it's so popular and how why there's kind of a fandom around it, I think endings like that actually lend itself to fandom because it's open-ended. So like you watch it and then you're like, oh, I'm thinking about like, what are Carol and Therese going to do after this movie? Like maybe they'll move in together. Maybe Carol will get her new job, blah, blah, blah. And then also like more literally like people write fanfic obviously about this because there's so much story there for people to think about. And I've even seen people um, do like crossover fanfics with like Carol and like there's this show I love called Agent Carter, which um, it's like a random Marvel show, but the two main women in the show, like I think they're very obviously in love, but they're not canonically a couple, but they're in the mid forties in New York city. So people have like written crossovers with Carol and Therese and Angie and Peggy from Agent Carter. So I kind of, I think, I think the way the ending is so open-ended again, lend it lends itself to that sort of continual thinking about the film that again, makes it perpetuate in fan spaces and in queer culture and that kind of thing. So I think that's another interesting idea about the way the ending is very open-ended, but still points points towards happiness, you might say, or points towards like a happy ending. But you might have to, you know, create the specifics in your own head. Yeah, totally. And you can do that. You can, you can create the specifics. You can write them down, um, and you can make crossover fiction with uh, exactly. that. That's awesome. Um, that's great. Okay, so let me. Uh, like we're, we're sort of getting towards the end of our document and also the time I allotted for this. So let me um, say the other thing I'm really eager to talk about is upon watching it this time, I noticed in a way that I hadn't before how much like May, December relationship stuff there is and specifically like how childlike Therese is in contrast to Carol. Um, and so one thing that I noticed this time is that when we, when we first see the scene where Therese <laughs> sees Carol for the first time, she's at this counter in the department store. Um, and there's a sign next to her that says mommy's baby. And yes. it's an advertisement for a doll. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, that uh, got me thinking as I was watching the movie about like, um, how much, well, actually, okay. So I mentioned this to you and you, and you talked about like the kind of like um, older women, uh, MILF like thing in specifically in like queer fandom. Um, and I want you to talk about that, but before you talk about that, I just want to say another thing that I recognized more. I never understood the line when Carol, when they're first getting like getting hooking up, having sex, um, I couldn't think of like the right way to describe two people <laughs> doing it. Um, <laughs> Carol is like on top of Therese and she like opens her robe and you just see like Therese bare chested lying there. And Carol is like looking at her and like holding her like abdomen. And she almost like covetously says, I never looked like that, which first thing I want to say is like time out. Obviously not true. Hello. That's not, <laughs> we're not buying it. Like, like you, no. th those, besides like a height difference and one of them being blonde and one of them being brunette, they're essentially interchangeable in terms of like how Hollywood sees women. So that's not true. Yeah. Fully um, false. <laughs> fully false. Fully false. But the, the line always was weird to me because I was like, what, what is she talking about? And it got me thinking about the age difference stuff and like how, the, the the other thing about Therese, this is I'm going to make this point in the most roundabout way. So please, like, I'm I'm taking us all on a journey, and I hope you'll come along with me. Um, <laughs> the thing about Therese that you get much more of in the book that I don't really think you get in the movie at all um, is that like Therese is kind of motherless, like she's kind of an orphan. Yeah, her mom she's an sort orphan, of like yeah. <laughs> yeah, her mom like sent her to boarding school and like started a new family and was like, we're not really that interested in having you around anymore. And and you do get the impression that Therese doesn't really have is she is it explicit in the movie that she like doesn't have parents? I don't know if it's explicit, but when her boyfriend is like always trying to get her to come to dinner and stuff, it's clear that like she doesn't have family that he can come visit. Like it's clear right. that his family is her fam the closest thing she has to family. 
Right, right. And like, I mean, one of the things that makes them getting together over the holidays work really well is that Therese has nowhere else to be. Um, yeah, exactly. She's not a family. And so like, there, there is some stuff that where like, in the very, again, because there's not a lot of exposition and no, and no one is like, saying things too explicitly part of me in the the very first time I saw the movie in the theater I was like is Therese like falling in love with her or is she um really taken with her as like a mother figure and then on subsequent watches I realized that those two things are not mutually exclusive yes, which exactly. I want you to talk about in a second <laughs> but the other thing specifically about mm-hmm. that I never look like that scene something that like I think queer a lot of like queer adults particularly depend depending on like where and when you grew up i think there are a lot of queer adults who look back on like being younger in a in a kind of covetous way of being envious of queer people who get to come out and or not even come out but get to sort of like express and feel who they are in a less problematic way than you did as an older person and i thought that like I decided that that's what that scene was about in part, like, because I mean, we don't know, we don't know anything about Carol for all we know, like she, she's been like, you know, hooking up with girls since she was younger than Therese. Like, we don't know, but like, I don't think we have to know to, um, to sort of see that scene as like capturing something about, um, about Therese's youth. And, you know, Carol made all these choices that led to her being in this relationship with Harge uh, and feeling really trapped and stifled. And of course, like, we don't know um, why she made those choices and why she ended up, but like, she, she, here's Therese who like, maybe doesn't have to make those same choices because of um, probably various things, like maybe class is a reason, but maybe also just because of the era, because like, Therese is coming of age in 1952, as opposed to 1942 or something like that. So um, does that make sense as like a coherent point, Kira? Yeah, I definitely buy that reading of that scene. I think that makes a lot of sense. Nice. Okay. I'm psyched. I'm so glad I said that. Okay. Now that I've said all of that, can you talk about the like older, older woman MILF, um, that, that just like that whole aspect of it. I wrote an article actually about lesbians loving MILFs a while ago, which was really fun to write. But I think basically what I decided is kind of like, I feel like what it comes down to is it's either, or it could be both kind of a younger woman desiring an older woman could be like the desire for, you know, care and comfort and those types of things, or kind of the desire in a more explicitly sexual manner for like domination of some sort. But I think both of those things are kind of two sides of the same coin in terms of control or ceding control to someone else and letting someone else have control. So, you know, I think there's the idea that, you know, someone older than you will have more confidence, more life experience, be more competent in whatever area. Um, I think that's kind of, in some sense, how Therese relates to Carol for much of the film. But I think what the film also does is illustrates that Carol really doesn't know what she's doing. Like, I think she says that explicitly in a, a scene. There's a scene where Abby asks her, like, do you know what you're even doing? And Carol's like, no, I never did. And it's just like such a wonderful thing. It's like, okay, Carol's older. She's had more life experiences, but she doesn't understand love better than Therese does. And she doesn't really have any more like material control over Therese, which I think is again why the end is interesting because now Therese has control because she's had more experience and more time to think about her life and be more confident. And I also think you can think of the film kind of as a coming of age story in that way because... And like you said, Therese is like kind of a big baby. <laughs> like, I love this film, but Therese can be like uh, kind of annoyingly childish at times. Mm-hmm. Like after when the whole thing with the gun happens, Therese is like crying in the car and like thinks that's all her fault. And it's like, it's not about you, babe. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, not it's really about not about you, you. So like she is, she's young, but she also act, acts very childish. So I think you can think of it as a coming of age story in that way. Um, and maybe kind of, even though there's still the age difference, they kind of become more equal in terms of just like their confidence and the way they exist. It seems a little bit more equal um, towards the end of the film. Yeah, and I think also at, that's why I think 
again, coming back to Abby, <laughs> I think you can think of people have, there's the, you know, the idea of like queer elders and there's kind of that tradition and queer and trans communities of having an older person kind of show you the ropes of queerness. And I think more so than Carol, I feel like Abby is actually that person in the film because Abby also has a significant relationship in some capacity with Therese. Like when Abby comes pick Therese up after Carol has left, she kind of tells Therese how it is. She's like, it's not about you. Carol has her own thing. And then she she's like the one keeping track of Therese while Carol can't see her. So she kind of actually is that figure of the queer elder because it feels like she's had more experience in the queer world than Carol has because she's unmarried. Um, so there's that other kind of age thing in terms of teaching and learning and elders and younger people. Yeah, that's so true. That's a that's a really good call. I hadn't really put that together exactly. Um, I think also I'm now realizing, and I, maybe I even said this to you when we were emailing about it, but like, there's the thing of like in the movie of Therese not having parents, but there's also the thing of like Carol not having a kid. Like she has a kid, but the kid's being taken away. And so you're sort of like, oh, like they're both filling these like different roles for one another. And there's the idea that people have always said that Therese's hair looks like Rindy's hair, Carol's daughter's hair. Like they have the same oh, haircut. Shit. Oh God, which I always, even which that. always makes me laugh. <laughs> but again, at the end, Therese kind of changes her hair a little bit. It's like more curled at the end. So maybe she's no long she's maybe she's no longer mommy's baby at the end of the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carol too, no longer mommy's baby. Um yeah, man. Oh man, so good. Okay. Well, I there were more things I wanted. I wanted to talk about this more. I wanted to talk about like the aesthetics of the movie and like the look and feel because it, it, it's so fucking interesting and exquisite, but we don't really have time. So, but we covered a lot of ground. I will say that, well, actually, Kira, is there anything that you didn't get to say about the movie that you want to make sure you get to say? Um, I really, I think the the way it's shot in terms of the actual film it, it was shot on is interesting. It's filmed on super 16 millimeter. So it's a 16 millimeter is, you know, a small size of film which means it's more the smaller the film size the more like pixelated and grainy it's going to be so you could you could shoot it like on 36 millimeter or 72 millimeter and it would be the picture would be much clearer but they decided to shoot on a, a smaller frame a smaller film size which makes it more grainy which that's kind of a common photography um size so it one connects to Teresa's vocation of photography but also puts it in kind of the time period of the 1950s um and again, I think photography is an interesting theme in the film as Therese's vocation because it kind of allows her to again be separated from other people but be observing kind of in the background so the way the actual visuality of the film in terms of the the graininess connects to photography I think is really interesting like thematically and visually there's a whole thing about Therese not wanting to take photos of people. Photos of people, yeah. I feel like we could we could do 90 more minutes on Carol, but we're not going to. We're, we're going to wrap it up. Um, let's move on to a nice thing to end on. And again, I'm not going to make you go first. I'll go first. My nice thing to end on is... Um, uh, well, first thing is of Mia Culpa, because I told you wonderful people, you Likeheads, Likehead Nation, to watch the TV show The Society. Are you familiar with the show, Kira? I've heard of it, but I've not watched it. I told everyone to watch the show. I watched the first, like, I think I recommended it when I was like halfway through the first season. I was under the very mistaken impression that this show had many, many seasons, Um and so it was something you could like get into for a long time. Not only does it only have one season, season one ends on a massive cliffhanger uh, because the show is kind of a puzzle box. And um, a friend of mine reached out to me and was like, you recommended The Society. You said there were lots of seasons. I watched it. It just ended. It's a cliffhanger, you monster. Uh, and I'm here to say I'm really sorry for anyone I misled about that. I was similarly heartbroken at the end of that finale episode. Just absolutely brutal. But... The good news is that I think we're going to do an episode on the society um, coming up sometime soon. So um, if you're if you want to watch it and think all about it, 
uh, please do that. And we'll talk about it. Um, and then my actual nice thing to end on is I've been doing a choose your own adventure on the, Oh, I like that pod uh, on Instagram at, Oh, I like that pod. It's a, it's like a, it's a very low stakes, cozy, choose your own adventure, but it's been really fun. And, um, I think we're having a good time with it. So, uh, that's been a blast and you should go to, Oh, I like that pod. And, uh, you can check the highlights and get the whole choose your own adventure and get caught up. Um, Kira, what is your nice thing to end on? Well, speaking of soul nourishing food that I was talking about at the beginning, I went to H Mart this weekend, which is like a Korean grocery store. And I got a bunch of delicious things, but I, my favorite thing is frozen udon noodles, which are so delicious. If you have an Asian grocery store nearby, you should pick up some frozen udon noodles, boil for a minute, put them in with some soy sauce, mirin, white pepper, water, maybe some baby bok choy. I've just been, I've been loving eating udon noodles. It's bringing me a lot of joy. So that's my recommendation and my good thing. That sounds, that is a very nice thing to end on. That sounds really good. It's very rainy where I am right now, very gray and rainy and cold. And if I had some frozen udon noodles, I would be getting involved with them right away. Kira, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a blast. Um, please tell people where they can find you online. Talk about where they can find your newsletter um, and all that stuff. And by the way, I will link in the show notes to the newsletter. I will link to Kira's um, thesis I referenced earlier, but say all your social stuff so people can find you. On Twitter, I'm paging Dr. Lesbian. On Instagram, I'm Rockingheims, as in the Bandheim. Um, my newsletter is kiradeschler.substack.com, but you should also be able to find it if you just type in paging Dr. Lesbian to Google. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Oh, I Like That. Please, as always, rate us and review us. I would say don't follow on Twitter just because I've neglected to keep the Twitter up to date because it isn't, wasn't doing much for me personally. But I am keeping uh, the Instagram alive um, in a very, I'd like to think, fun way. We're at uh, Oh, I Like That pod, I'm pretty sure, on uh, Instagram. Uh, and you can also email the show at oh, I like that pod at gmail.com. Uh, oh, yeah, and I'm on Twitter at Sally T. This episode of Oh, I Like That was produced by Sally and Kira and edited by Aram. Amber Seeger designed our logo. That's it. Thank you, Kira, for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks.